The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the end of the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Lauren. Appreciate that. Hey, Russ Ramsey, can I invite you forward? So so here's an exciting announcement, okay? Uh, Many of you know, if you've been around for a while, that we are, uh, as Christ Presbyterian, one church uh, currently with two locations. We meet here on Sundays, but then there's also a service led by Pastor Stacy Croft, uh, possibly, actually very likely going to two services in the fall, uh, right across the street from Vanderbilt. That's our Christ Presbyterian in-town location. And uh, Russ Ramsey, uh, if you've been around for a while, you know that he's, uh, he's been identified as the next uh, planter and pastor of Christ Pres number three. And uh, Russ has been uh, uh, on our pastoral staff now for the last couple of years. And, and uh, and uh, we're just uh, really thrilled to, to be launching him and Lisa and their kids to serve another part of our city where new residents are flooding in, uh, and, um, and there are plenty of uh, people who don't have a local church that they identify with, and, and Russ is going in to, to serve that, that part of town. And uh, I'm here to announce what that location is going to be this morning, and uh, we can just do the drum roll. Um, just imagine a drum roll right now. We can uh, cue the slide. Uh, we are going to be calling this, uh, we can go to the, yeah, there it is, uh, Christ Presbyterian 65 South. Uh, that's the current working name until we find an actual location. Uh, but this is, uh, this is the fastest growing job market in the nation, uh, is concentrated in this area. And it is also the fastest growing area of all of metropolitan Nashville with the hundred people or so that move here every single day. Uh, A very sizable number of those people are actually moving into this area. Uh, Russ and Lisa and their kids are already part of the the school districts that are are concentrated in the area, already living their lives there and um, make their home there. The target area is uh, south of Concord Road. 
north of 96 or Murfreesboro Road, and we're biasing uh, the eastern side of I-65. That's where we're really going to try to focus hard on, on finding a spot, um, but we're not going to be official until we actually lock in in terms of a worship location. But the idea, again, is to target new residents to, to the area as well as people who don't already identify uh, with a church home and with a church family. And um, by the way, if you're interested in considering being part of this launch and part of this new expression of Christ Prez, uh, uh, Russ is going to start a core community this, uh, this summer, actually. The date is still to be determined, but it'll be sometime June, July, and uh, the announcements will, will be there for that. Uh, so stay tuned for that. But just want to invite us all to do a couple of things starting now. Uh, number one, to pray earnestly that God would open doors for the gospel. Uh, and number two, to start spreading the word, uh, especially among those uh, uh, who are new to town, uh, don't have a church home, uh, identify with this area of town, and, and might want to uh, hear more about the project. But what I'd like to do is pray for you. And we're going we're gonna to do something with a lot more fanfare when it's time to officially launch this congregation, but this is, this is the announcement today. So now we know where it's going to be, we know who it's going to be, and uh, we couldn't be more thrilled. Uh, so uh, we pray for you. Father, thank you for, for Russ and Lisa and the kids and just the, um, the grace uh, that it is that you have entrusted uh, this family to be part of our team. Uh, and thank you, Father, for the faithful ministry that, that all of them have, um, have offered to us through Russ's teaching and leadership and preaching and uh, through Lisa's uh, faithful service and friendship and the kids uh, handing out bulletins at the doorways and being part of our hospitality team and so much more. And uh, Father, uh, in one sense here at our central location, we're going to miss them when we send them out. Um, in another sense, we're so glad to be tethered with them uh, uh, into the next uh, years and decades, being on the same team, uh, seeking to reach a new part of our city as Christ Presbyterian. We just pray that you would open doors. We pray that you would give them favor, that, that, that you would give them uh, the people that they need. And, and, and uh, Father, introduce them soon to people they haven't even met yet that you have, uh, you have selected uh, to be part of this work and maybe even come into the kingdom of God for the first time in their lives as a result of this work. And so we just pray that you would give them all favor and all grace, and uh, just thank you that you love them so much. We love them, and, and we all love you. And we, uh, we just give this project to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. We love you. Thanks, man. See you soon, man. Hey, Russ, are you all, uh, did, did you, are you sticking around until the, of course you are, because uh, you're going to be uh, at the youth thing. So if you want to give Russ and Lisa and the kids a hug afterwards, they'll be somewhere. So um, look for them. Um, so uh, now I'd like to turn our attention back to the Philippians text. And by the way, we're squeezing announcements between the Scripture reading and the sermon because we wanted to get all that uh, on the uh, internet recordings of the sermon so that the Word can get out there about this new work. So, um, so the last series we did, uh, we, we finished that up uh, last week, uh, and uh, that was a series in Ecclesiastes, and the theme of Ecclesiastes is everything's meaningless, everything's vapor. And now we turn to Philippians, part of the same Bible, 
that says there's joy in everything, even from the prison cell from which Paul wrote this letter. So, uh, I want to start this series with a few thoughts about loneliness. Uh, There's actually, did you know, a new government position in the UK that was just uh, initiated called Minister of Loneliness. It's like Chief of Staff, Surgeon General, Attorney General, Chief of Loneliness. Time Magazine reports the reason why, and that's that 14% of the British population says that they always or almost always feel lonely. It's even worse in Japan, where 33% of the population uh, says that they feel lonely all of the time. How about the United States? The Harvard Business Review came out with uh, uh, a piece a while ago called Work and the Loneliness Epidemic, and this whole article was about social isolation and how loneliness actually reduces human lifespan to the same degree that smoking 15 cigarettes a day reduces lifespan. So it has health implications. CBS News just this past week came out with a report indicating that alongside the 14% of the British population and the 33% of the the Japanese population, 47% of the American population identifies as regularly feeling lonely and left out. And healthcare professionals target this as a major contributor to health issues like diabetes, heart disease, depression, and early death. This is not a new problem. It goes all the way back to the beginning of time before things went wrong with the world. Into His perfect world, into paradise, God pronounced these words. It is not good for Adam, for Adam, which is the name of this guy, the first human, but it's also the Hebrew word for humanity. It is not good for humanity to be alone. And part of how God addressed that isolation, that aloneness with Adam was providing him with a wife and with children. But lest we wrongly assume that having a nuclear family is the necessary answer to loneliness. The two foremost teachers on marriage are Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul, who were single men. What these two emphasize is the enduring community, the enduring family that will outlast the nuclear family called the church, the body of Christ, where everyone has a place, where everyone has full inclusion, and where everyone is family. Wes Hill, who um, is a professor and a book writer um, and a Christian, believes that he is called by God to a lifetime of singleness. And from that place, he says to the local church in his writings, you are my significant other. You are my family. You are my future. 
you are the ones that I must grow old with in order to be fully human and fully what God has made me to be. These opening words of Philippians are such a treasure because these opening words written by a single man alone in a prison are giving us three ingredients for community from which every person, specifically those in Christ, are now resourced to overcome the it is not good that God pronounced. And the 47% United States statistic, the 33% Japanese, the 14% British statistic. These three ingredients are warmth, inclusion, and loyalty. So I'm just going to run through those. Warmth. Did you notice the words here. In verses 7 and 8, he, he writes to this community, I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. So, the church is not a place where you go. The church is a people with whom you belong, and to whom you are tethered. That's what the church is. We see a picture of this also in the 20th chapter of Acts when, when Paul is about to move on from a church that he has planted. It's a joy to see my brother here, Anthony, and his wife, Ashley. Sorry to call you all out, but they were part of a church, or, or, well, you were, and you've gotten married since, but, but An- I had to leave Anthony and our church family to go on to New York City a few years ago, several years ago. That broke my heart, because uh, Anthony is one of my closest friends. And uh, I remember we had some tears and some sadness about that. And the Apostle Paul has very similar experience when he leaves the church at Ephesus to go on and plant another church. They're weeping. They're embracing they're kissing as they say goodbye because there's something in them that knows this is supposed to be permanent. In fact, this is going to be permanent, even though right now the permanence is disrupted. The closing of so many of his letters, Paul mentions people by name. He makes all these affectionate, affirming, I long for you kind of statements for them. And here he says, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you. It's it's like you can hear Willie Nelson ringing in your ears. You're always on my mind. You're always on my mind. What stirred Paul's affection for these people? Two things, their faithfulness and their sinfulness. Their faithfulness stirred his affection. You know, you look at verse 5 and he's referring to them as partners in the gospel from the first day until now. And one of the things that is highlighted about the Philippians, also known as the Macedonians, is their extreme generosity from their economic position of extreme poverty. Even though they lived in scarcity, they, they were famous in the early church for their radical generosity, even to the point where Paul writes to the Corinthians 
uh, a, a very affluent community that was tight-fisted and says to them, learn from the Macedonians, learn from the grace that God has given to the Macedonians who are, Paul says, from a place of extreme poverty, overflowing in generosity even beyond their means. This is all in 1 Corinthians 8, where he speaks about them with such affection and their partnership in the gospel. But then he goes on and he says, the Macedonians, the Philippians, they're beggars, but they're a different kind of beggar. They're actually begging us for more and more opportunity to give out of their scarcity, to participate in what God is doing, in the planting of churches and so on. They're begging for more and more of less and less. But then there's also in Philippi a very prominent businesswoman named Lydia who, when she hears uh, the preaching of the gospel, when Paul and the other missionaries come to Philippi, it's all there in Acts chapter 16, it says that she's on the edge of her seat and, and, and she, she believes and she's baptized. And then she as a partner now in the gospel, opens up her home. It says she has a home large enough to host a local church. And she opens up her home, and that's where the church, that her home is the church building. And so her generosity comes out in that way. So he, he was so affectionate because he saw the faithfulness of Christ working through them. The one who was rich yet he became poor, so, so through his poverty we might become rich. But then he also had affection for them because of their sinfulness, because he knew that, that behind and beneath the sinfulness was a wound. He was tuned in to the reality that, that, that we often get amnesia about, and that is that hurting people hurt people. It's a reason why people behave hurtfully and, and sinfully and why they rebel and so on. It's because there's something that they're trying to medicate. And Paul knows this. As we've, we've said before, you be kind because everyone you meet, every single person you meet is fighting a hard, hidden battle. Paul was, was deeply attuned, uh, attuned to this. And you see this also in the 16th chapter of Acts where, where they're preaching the gospel and people like Lydia are coming to faith in Jesus Christ and it, it creates this massive disruption because uh, at the center of their economy, a big money-making uh, industry was the witchcraft industry, which was uh, diametrically opposed to the message of the gospel and of, of Christ who had died and risen and will come again. It's kind of like porn is for us, big money-maker, huge part of the economy, economy-driver. And so, when, when money was being lost because people were getting converted to Christ and their lives were being transformed and they were leaving the witchcraft culture as a result, the people in charge got angry. And what they did was they dragged Paul and his companions into public spaces. They stripped them naked to humiliate them. They whipped them. They, they, they physically and aggressively beat them. And then they threw them in prison. And to greet them in prison was a jailer who, um, like the other jailers of the time, would have been just as oppressive, just as violent, just as scornful and scorning 
as those who had brought them to prison. And so their first night in prison, it says that God causes an earthquake, and the prison doors open up, and and they're free, and now they have the upper hand because it's them and it's the jailer. They have the upper hand, and yet their response is not to scold. Their response isn't to say, shame on you. Their response is this, you can be part of this too. You know, they essentially, they preached the most frequently repeated command in the Bible to this jailer, do not fear. Did you know that there's no command that's repeated in the Bible more than that one, do not fear, because God can be with you as well. And it says that the jailer, as well as his whole household, like Lydia, was converted to Jesus. They were baptized. So he has affection for them, like like any of us has affection for those that, that have come to Jesus Christ with us in the room. I mean, there's a certain part of, of their story that be- becomes part of yours because you've witnessed a miracle of transformation. And so, in every church, you know, whether for faithfulness or for sinfulness, there should be this pursuit of this affection and hold you in my heartness that's going on with Paul. Because in every church, you're going to encounter essentially three types of people. The people that are really easy to love, that's people like, say, Todd Teller, who will kiss you on the neck whether you like it or not, Uh, and Patty Sauls, who's the most loyal person you'll ever meet. They're also going to be people that are harder to love, not necessarily because they've done anything wrong to you, it's just that you disagree with them so sharply on fill-in-the-blank politics, for example. So, five years ago, we start connect groups, and a couple of folks reached out to the pastoral staff and said, can you put us in a connect group with a bunch of Republicans? Because we're very, you know, committed Democrats, and we want to be in community with some Republicans just so we can expand our horizons and such. And, you know, at that time, we thought, yeah, probably find you some Republicans around here. Um, And since that time and to this day, this couple and all their Republican friends go on vacations together, study the Bible together, and now the woman who was in this couple, she teaches a core community, and a bunch of Republicans go there because they want to learn from her. And our church is becoming politically diverse, which is a beautiful thing which should make us want to love Jesus more, not less, which should make us want to love our church more, not less. And then they're the people that God calls us to forgive because they really have hurt us. I've told you this story before. Um, This is the two pastors walk in a bar, uh, into a bar story, and I was one of the pastors. This was um, beginning of our time in New York. And there was a pastor on staff at Redeemer. He and I were oil and water. We just did not get along. We disagreed on everything. And so one night we decided that we would go have a beer together and work out our differences, etc. And we ended up screaming at each other in front of everybody else in the restaurant. <laughs> and, you know, we, we went our separate ways. And both of us are, of course, dreading going into the office the next day. And 
you know, some, sometime in the middle of the morning the next day, I hear a knock on my door, and it's him. And what he does is he comes in, he grabs me on the shoulder, and he looks me square in the eye, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, he's about to spit in my face. And maybe I should spit first. And, and, and he looks at me, and he says, Scott, he, he quoted Philippians 1.6 to me. He says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful until the day of Christ Jesus. And will you have that same confidence for me? That stirred my affection. He's still my friend. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Church is not some place that you go to. It's not a consumer good. It's not the flavor of the month. It's a people that you intend to die with. Either I bury you or you bury me. That's what church is. Otherwise, we're just consumers. If we keep piecing out and never pressing in when things get challenging, then we're just going to church and observing. We're not being the church as family, until we can look in the rearview mirror and see a few things that, that Jesus, where Jesus turned consternation and disagreement into warmth through a process of moving toward each other. That's how the gospel works. It's the difference between going to church and having church and being the church. So, there's warmth, but the second ingredient is inclusion. And that is the ability that Jesus and the gospel give to all of us to love and embrace across the lines of difference in the same way that He has done for us. After all, the Christian story is not centered in the United States or even in North America. It's centered in the Middle East, out of which from a small town, a dark-skinned, Middle Eastern, refugee, Aramaic-speaking Savior who never spoke a word of English, who did not hang out with white people, said, you go get them at the ends of the earth too. You go include them. You go bring them in, not just Judea, not just Jerusalem, not just Samaria, ends of the earth, all the way over there to that place that's not even a country yet, but it will be one day, and I want you to include them so that I can love them as much as I love the Apostle Paul and the Virgin Mary. Include them. Do you see in verse 8 how Paul says, I yearn for you all? And then he uses Jew-Gentile language. I'll get to that in a minute, but inclusion means your social situation. I've already covered how Paul's commending the poor Macedonian Philippians to the rich Corinthians, but it also has to do with sin history. The kingdom of God is, a, is radically inclusive of all types of sin histories because grace covers every kind of sin, not only certain kinds of sin. You know, the gospel is there for the generous Lydia, it is also there for the oppressive prison guard. You do a survey of the Bible, you'll find that the most faithful, most impactful followers of Jesus in the Bible 
are the ones who also have the greatest flaws. Noah was drunk. Abraham put his wife in, a, in such a vulnerable position that she could be a poster child for, for hashtag me too. And he did it to her twice. And he passed the misogyny down to his son Isaac who did the same thing to his wife. Jacob was a liar. Moses had pride. Rahab was a prostitute. David committed adultery and murder. He was a sex abuser, an abuser of power. Peter was a betrayer. Paul was a bully. I was talking to a Christian man who's also a college professor um, recently about a a day trip that he took to to the prison with uh, some of his students. He wanted to give his students and the prisoners that he works with and ministers among uh, time to interface with one another and learn from one another's perspective. And the subject of Jeffrey Dahmer came up. Remember Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer who um, was reported to have converted to Christianity very shortly before he was executed on death row? And the college professor said, what do you all think about that, Jeffrey Dahmer as a, as a Christian? And the college student said, uh, no, I can't be on board with that, no way. And then the inmates, one by one, said, why not? See, your social situation, the degree to which you have or have not hit bottom in your life is going to be the determining factor of whether or not you are poor in spirit or middle class in spirit. If you're middle class in spirit, you can say all the right words, you can have your sound theology, you can read your Bible every day, you know, with your cup of coffee or whatever it is, with your feet kicked up on your ottoman and pretend that you're a follower of Christ. But the moment your heart says, no way in hell, is the moment you put yourself at risk of being assigned there yourself. Do you still love Jesus? Do you still want to follow Him, assuming that these things are true? That Jesus would not only tolerate, but go out of His way to include prostitutes and people like Paul, who was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, and give Him the opportunity and the green light to write one-third of the New Testament of all things. When you think about David, the murderer, the sexual predator, the abuser of his power, you ever think about how radical it is that Jesus would later call himself the son of David, that he would so associate himself with such evil? Guess what? That's your family. That's, that's who will greet you in the kingdom. You still love Jesus? Or are you middle class in spirit, playing religion, being a good Southern Christian, being a good Bible Belt citizen? What does Paul say? Grace and peace to you. Grace, that's a Greek Gentile word, peace to you. That's a Jewish word. 
Paul and Timothy writing to you. Paul, the pure-blooded Jew, and his companion, Timothy, who Harry Potter fans would refer to as a mudblood. Jewish mother, Greek father, also known in the Jewish community as bastard child. I want you to meet my partner, Timothy. We're generationally different. We're ethnically different. He is just as much part of you as I am part of you. Jew and Gentile divisions represented ethnic, religious, social, cultural, ideological, political, economic, every kind of barrier. It's as if Paul is saying, Black Lives Matter and law enforcement to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Trump and Obama supporters to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Men and women, baby boomers and millennials, urban people and suburban people, rich and poor, those with power and those without it, white collar and blue collar, married and unmarried to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because I hold you all in my heart. Do you still love Him? Do you still want to be part of what He's up to in the world? The gospel is first vertical, where reconciliation happens between holiness and sinfulness, heaven and earth, God and humanity. But the immediate implication and application is love God, love neighbor. There's the horizontal dimension as well. Dividing walls, as Ephesians says, broken down in the gospel of Jesus Christ, even between Jew and Gentile, even between slave and free, even between male and female, and so on and so forth. Here's what the gospel does. It creates a community that could not happen outside of Christ. It even creates warmth between people who outside of Christ would detest each other. Do you still love him? Do you still want to be part of what he's up to in the world? The last piece is loyalty. You know, he, he says, you know, in verse 7, that the, his Philippians, Philippian brothers and sisters have stuck with him. On the one hand, when his ministry was at its peak, when he was a celebrity pastor, when he was crushing it, when he was killing it, when converts were happening, new churches were getting started, he was getting the book deals, and everything was moving forward, and there was momentum, 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 momentum. You were with me when I was defending the gospel, and you're with me still when I'm no longer the it church pastor, when I'm being scorned and made fun of and put in my place and lied about and slandered and beaten, you're just as with me now as you were with me then. You are just as in the valley with me as you were with me on the top of the mountain. There are two kinds of Christians. There are fair-weather Christians those are the ones who are fickle. They'll stick with you for as long as they feel like the relationship benefits them more than it costs them. And then there are covenant-oriented believers, firm, solid, resilient, thick. They stick with you because that's what the people of Jesus do. 
That's what the people of the one who will never leave you or forsake you do with each other. They don't leave each other. They don't forsake each other. You know, Richard Swartz in Overcoming Loneliness in Everyday Life says, dropping in and out as one pleases, shopping around for a more satisfactory or appealing group, these factors work against the growth of true community. Even worse, they work against the mission of Jesus in the world. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. But for the Philippians, they don't care whether or not Paul is a celebrity. They don't care whether or not he's, you know, taking names or having his name dragged through the mud. They're with him. They're for him, for better, for worse, richer, for poorer, sickness and in health, until one of us buries the other. Why? Because Jesus went first. Jesus went first. Look at verse 10. Let your love abound so that you may approve what will be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Who is it going to be that's going to be pure and blameless on the day of Christ? This is a beautiful thing. All of our imperfections that create all this friction and cause pastors to yell at each other at bars, all of these things will be perfected and purified. We will be like Him because we will, we have, we will have been with Him face to face. We will know Him to that level that we actually become like Him. And so, can we have those future eyes toward one another? I am confident of this, that He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. Will you have that confidence for me as well? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You that You are warm toward us, that You are fond of us, that You hold us in Your heart, that You yearn for us with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Thank You that You include us over here, over yonder at the ends of the earth where we reside. Thank You that our inclusion is not partial. Thank You that we are not part of the B group in the kingdom of God. Thank You that we are just as loved in Christ as the Virgin Mary and as the Apostle Paul, and even just as loved as Jesus Christ Himself, because we are clothed with His righteousness and glory and fame and beauty. Thank You, Father, that You are loyal, that You will never leave us, You will never forsake us, that Your love is stronger than death, quite literally stronger than death. Thank You that we will rise with You Thank You that we will be presented before You, pure and blameless on the day of Christ. And until then, Father, teach us to love one another well. In Your name we pray. Amen. Amen.